Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the Brookhaven Police Department is experimenting with a different response program using unmanned drones. It could be as simple as someone saying somebody has a, gr- a gun on the call. The drone gets there within a minute to 90 seconds, says, hey, it's not a gun, it's a stick or it's, it's a lighter. And the police officer going and seeing, on the scene understands, hey, there's a trained police officer who's viewing this footage and says to me, hey, I'm, I'm looking at the guy and the guy that was the information that was provided to me was not a subject with the gun. And that immediately de-escalates that situation. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first this, Georgia's Coastal Public Health District began administering Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to frontline health care workers yesterday. Speaking from the Chatham Health Department, Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey urged non-essential workers to be patient. Because as, even as we are excited about this vaccine campaign, we have relatively few vaccines initially to begin with as we roll the vaccine out in phases. Dr. Tooming added additional shipments of Pfizer's vaccine should arrive at public health offices and health care facilities throughout the state this week. Now, these doses will go to health care workers and people living and working at long term care facilities. Approximately 84,800 doses expected for this first phase. And all those doses were already allocated to hospitals and public health facilities across the state. Now, Dr. Toomey also said the state has nearly 174,000 doses of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine on order that could arrive next week if U.S. regulators approve the shot for emergency use. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp was there, and although the vaccine is arriving, Kemp encouraged Georgians to stay cautious, especially during the holidays. We are too close to the finish line to grow weary. If we continue to do these simple things for the next couple of weeks, we will get through this together. Now, as many hospitals throughout the nation are either near or beyond capacity, COVID-19 hospitalizations continue to increase. At the time of this broadcast, 38,101 have been hospitalized here in Georgia, and of those, 6,896 are considered ICU admissions. Also, 484,152 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed, and the state has recorded 9,250 deaths. As always, our information comes from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And finally, this, Clark Atlanta University is on the receiving end of a $15 million gift. It's the largest private donation ever for the historically black university. Now, the donation comes from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, no relation, who also gave $20 million to Morehouse and Spelman Colleges earlier this year. In a statement, Clark Atlanta University President Dr. George T. French Jr. said he hopes the donation will encourage other donors to follow suit, saying, quote, 
With additional financial resources, the university can continue to strengthen academic programs, retain and recruit talented faculty, provide more scholarships to students, and renovate several historic buildings and residence halls on campus, close quote. Congratulations, CAU. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Brookhaven Police Department has a new program that will use unmanned drones to respond to certain emergencies. The city council actually voted this past October to fund the technology, and it's the first program of its kind in Georgia. Now, other police departments in other areas of the country, including California and Hawaii, have been using similar technology for a while. Joining me now to discuss how Brookhaven's program will operate is Lieutenant Abram Ayana. He's taking the lead on implementing this new idea. Lieutenant, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's get right to it. You know, people, we think of drones, and obviously we know they're used for with first responders and for emergencies and natural disasters. Why did you all want to use this program or implement this new program? So this idea actually didn't start out on this scale um, it started as a conversation between um, the chief and myself and some other stakeholders in the department about how we can best respond um, to the needs of our community. Um, in Brookhaven, we we do have an issue and not anything different than Metro Atlanta with people breaking into cars um, and committing entering autos. Um, and at the time, I was a watch commander on the night shift, um, and we would get reports of entering autos and persons pulling on doors door handles of cars um, and officers are responding. They were getting there within two or three minutes. Um, But we really had nothing other than the officer's visual perception at night of where the perpetrators were and and where they weren't and things of that sort. So the the criminals could see us coming from a mile away in our big police cars, but we could never see them. And so it became frustrating being the morning watch commander, seeing 15, 20, 30 cars or having many cars getting broken into or residents calling us saying they saw suspicious activity and us not being able to to actually be effective in catching those people on a large number of the occurrences. Um, and so we started looking at technologies and way to bring uh, drones into the picture because oftentimes we would have to call the Cab County Police and other agencies, the state patrol and whatnot, to bring in a helicopter, um, mm-hmm. which that could be as, as, as quickly as 30 minutes or as long as an hour, an hour and a half. And you're talking about trying to catch a criminal right now yeah. or trying to find a missing or lost child right now. Um, and so we found that a lot of times when we had an, a need for immediacy, we didn't have an immediate resource. Um, and so we we looked at the, the drone technology. Um, we looked at buying drones. And then one day the major of patrol just so happened to say, hey, let me show you this YouTube video. And it was a YouTube video of Chula Vista using their drone as a first responder. And I was like, man, that is awesome. But we'll never get the funding to do something like that here. And he was like, yeah, I agree. Um, and then it just so happened the chief was at a conference looking at a gyrocopter. Um, he started talking about gyrocopters, and I was like, oh, this, this might be the opportunity. Let's ask for a drone. Uh, I said, hey, Chief, yeah. hey, Chief look, look at this YouTube video. And uh, as you know, if you've done any reading about our chief, he's very, very progressive yeah. um, and looking at, te- looking at technology to, to help officers be more effective and safer um, and, and bringing technology on board as a de-escalation tool as well. Um, and he said, oh, bring this guy in and let's talk to him. And I was like, hey, awesome, Chief, because, you know, I've been talking to this guy for about six, seven months. 
Um, and the guy, he, the, the guy who helps Chula Vista with their program came to Brookhaven and the rest is history. The chief was like, Hey, let's see what it would cost to do this. And we did. And he took it to the, the city manager and the city council and they were on board immediately. And they said, Hey, we need to do this. In between when the city council voted to fund the technology. And now you all have been going back and forth, getting a tutorial on all of this. As a matter of fact, at the time of this conversation, you are on the West Coast in Chula Vista learning more about this technology. And it's not being used at all here in Georgia. So how this goes for you all could determine whether or not other departments will use this. So you all are like the test pilot. It is. It is um, <clears throat> that's the beauty of this thing. I'm in Chula Vista now. I'm in Southern California, and I'll, I'll be here all week. Um, <clears throat> and I asked the chief, I said, hey, can I go to where the professionals are? And really see that these guys are that they're 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 paving the way on this. And the last thing I want to do is bring something up, follow their mold, and never come here to see how they're doing it. So let's take our listeners through a potential scenario here. You get a call, uh, okay. maybe there is a lost child or someone is seen trying to break into a car. You all would be able to activate this drone. Someone is operating the, the drone. You'd have to, I guess, with technology, you'd have to put in the address. Then fly the drone to the area that's a lot of training it's going to have to happen as well right there is a lot of training that goes along with it um our pilots unlike any other program i've seen in the history of our police department this this created immense interest from our officers um so we'll have about 17 or 18 of our personnel who have who will receive they've already received training um and the training is always ongoing but they'll receive uh they'll, they'll work towards and they'll obtain a part 107 uh which is a unmanned aerial vehicle, a UAV or a UAS pilot's, pilot's license mm-hmm. um, or authorization to be able to fly these things. And that's not something easy. Um, so they'll have to prepare and take a test that is that is uh, provided by the FAA to retain uh, certification to fly these 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 vehicles. Um, but to, to back up for a second, you asked about how these drones are deployed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the unique thing with drone as a first responder is just like a, a civilian would call 911 and say, hey, something is happening. That is going to happen in a, in a ground unit would be dispatched. But in addition to that ground unit, that drone immediately responds. So when that drone operator hears that 911 call, that drone is flying to the scene. So there's no 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 red lights, no traffic. And so what we're going to see is an immediate response, an immediate police presence, if you will, on the scene that is going to be able to provide real-time information to the ground officers on scene. So we'll have a camera on it, obviously, correct? Yes, ma'am, it will. That camera will provide a feed back to an officer who is piloting and monitoring that feed and is able to provide real-time information to the ground unit. So it could be as simple as someone saying somebody has a, gr- a gun on the call. The drone gets there within a minute to 90 seconds, says, hey, it's not a gun. It's, it's, it's a stick mm-hmm. or it's, it's a lighter. And the police officer going and seeing on the scene understands, hey, there's a trained police officer who's viewing this footage and says to me, hey, I'm looking at the guy and the guy that was the information that was provided to me was not a subject with the gun. And that immediately de-escalates that situation. That's my next question. What type of emergencies do you all anticipate that these unmanned drones could respond to? These drones will respond to a host of calls for service. It wouldn't just be emergencies. It could be something as a suspicious person. Someone's knocking on my door. I don't expect anyone, you know, for that person that's calling 911, yes, that's an emergency. That's what they call 911. Sure. But for, for police officers, we don't consider that to be a true emergency. So that's not a lights and siren response, you know. Mm-hmm. So it could take upwards of 10, 8 to 10 minutes um, or in some jurisdictions where they have 
less resource, more traffic and things of that sort. It can take a lot longer. Um, in Brookhaven, we don't have that issue, but we're able to provide an immediate response um, to any call. So it could be an accident. Someone could call to report an accident. And what we find a lot of times is that people may not know specifically where they are. Mm -hmm. So they could say, I'm on Peachtree Road near the Kroger. When actually, they could be a mile and a half from the Kroger, but the Kroger was the last thing they saw. And so we will be able to send a drone to that area armed with colors of vehicles or descriptions of vehicles. We could ask them for landmarks. They could say, oh, I see the Chevron gas station. Our officers know where the Chevron gas station is. They're, they're flying the drone. So they'll be able to fly the drone and tell the ground units, hey, they're not near the Kroger. They're actually a mile up the road or half a mile up the road in front of the Chevron and they're out of the roadway there and it doesn't appear to be anyone injured. Let me ask you this. So far, have you all also been asking questions to these other police departments throughout the nation in terms of what issues are y'all having? What challenges are you all having with these unmanned uh, drones? For generally, that's the first question I ask. Um, I've been in Chula Vista now for almost 24 hours and every conversation, I bet the conversation didn't just start this week. This is a almost a years long conversation mm-hmm. I've been having with them. And I've been very, very frank in my questioning. Um, and they've been very honest with me in the answering. You know, there, there are things about it that, that, that do keep me up at night. And it's the same thing that, hey, how do, I, how do we build safeguards into this program to make sure that all of these concerns that people have are addressed on the forefront? And so we've, we're coming up with a robust policy um, that protects the citizens, um, that says, hey, our, our drones won't be operating in a, in a manner where we are dealing with people in an area where they have a, a reasonable expectation of privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, our drones are not going to be out just patrolling the skies. Um, so one of the things that we often hear people say, oh, eyes in the sky, eyes in the sky. This is not Skynet. This okay. is a police officer who is flying this drone, who is responding to a 911 call. Did you say Skynet like from Terminator? Yeah, that's what people, that's one of the first questions I get. Is this Skynet or is this, you know, because drones have such a a, a significant connotation with war. Yes, um, they do. Because that's what's been used overseas. And that's not what this is. Mm-hmm. This is another tool being used by the Brookhaven Police Department to provide professional, high quality and effective service. Let me ask you this, Lieutenant, because I want to read a quote to you from Jay Stanley. He's a senior policy analyst with the American Civil Liberties Union's Project on Speech, Privacy, and Technology. And this is something he told the New York Times, quote, Communities should ask hard questions about these programs. As the power and scope of this technology expands, so does the need for privacy protection. Drones can be used to investigate known crimes, but they are also sensors that can generate offenses. Close quote. What do you make of that? So I, I, I tell everyone who, who asks me questions, I, I, I encourage skeptics because knowing that there's someone out there who's skeptical and who's watching you, it breeds a sense of accountability. Um, accountability is messy work, but in the end, it keeps you clean. Um, and so knowing that there are people who are going to be watching us and who are going to be questioning us gets us in the mind frame of, hey, how do we become forward thinking on our policies? How do we maintain a forward thinking approach on making sure this thing is operating safely? Um, and how do we, instead of just becoming cops with drones who are doing everything to serve our interests, whatever they may be, how are we doing everything we can to serve the public's interest? And so I would say, I appreciate his concern. Um, it is at the forefront of everything that we're doing. And we're gonna make sure that this program, just like everything that we do in the police department is in accordance with the constitution. We're going to do everything we can to protect people's civil rights because at the end of the day, we must maintain legitimacy um, in everything that we do because that's that's truly the best way for us to be effective. And so let me ask you this. How many drones do you all expect to purchase or to get with this funding? 
So we have the main drone, which is what's attracting the most attention um, that has the, the greatest capability, to be honest with you. Um, and then we have other drones that will help us uh, to, to photograph crime scenes and accident scenes. Um, and that is one that we're really excited about because think about any, how many times you've been stuck in traffic because there's been a fatal accident or a fatal shooting and they had to block down the road for, they had to block the road for several hours mm -hmm. um, to reconstruct and photograph that crime scene. And we know that every, every hour, uh, however many minutes the road is closed, that's a loss to our local economy. Um, and so with this technology, that drone will allow us to accomplish that same mission um, a lot quicker, allowing people to get to their destinations a lot quicker and making sure the economy and local businesses don't suffer a loss as a result of a road closure or crime scene closure. So that's one additional drone. Um, and then we'll have another drone. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone has seen the footage of the Atlanta police uh, capturing the wanted person who uh, killed the uh, the actor that ki uh, was killed in the um, that was uh, a Spike Lee actor, one of Spike Lee's films. Thomas Jefferson um, Bird. Uh huh. Yes. Atlanta police, when they located that subject, the SWAT team utilized a drone um, to enter that apartment, clear that apartment, making it safer for the officers to enter. And they were able to interact with that individual and bring him into custody. Um, <clears throat> and so you could imagine what it would be, how dynamic the SWAT mm -hmm. team would have to do their job had it not been for that drone. And that drone was able to allow them to be successful in capturing that subject um, without the need for use of force and that such. So we have a drone that will provide us that same capability as well. That's actually one of my last questions as we wrap up, Lieutenant, is that through your lens, how do you see this unmanned drone initiative being able to help you all de-escalate potential deadly encounters? And, and I don't need to tell you what that means. I know exactly what you're getting at. So one of the things that I've spoken with the folks here in Chula Vista about, and their police chief has been very, very um, candid about how, how this is a de-escalation tool. Um, if you think about um, the Tamir Rice shooting, mm -hmm. um, when Tamir Rice was killed in that park, um, they responded to a call about a, someone with a gun. Mm -hmm. And if that were to ever happen, here we have now a tool that allows us to show up and say, hey, it's a child with what could be a toy gun. Hey, this is how we need to approach it. Um, hey, it's, it's a person that's carrying a gun legally. Oftentimes what we find is callers on 911 calls, like we said earlier, it's an emergency to them. And so sometimes the information that they're giving is not reliable in the sense that it's being told from their point of view um, and the situation and the realities that they're living in. And it may not be consistent with everything that will line up to a certain level of force or a certain response. And so what we're, we're counting on and it's been effective for Chula Vista and others who use drone technology is to give the officers on the ground a first, a first bird's eye view, a, a, a lens without putting officers in harm's way to say, hey, this is what is occurring. This is what's not occurring. And so if we can do that, if I can if I can tell our officers what's around the corner without actually putting them in harm's way, then it makes the officer safety safer. It makes the citizens safer. Um, and safer communities is what we all want. And we should note for those that may not be aware, Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old young black boy, I believe, in the Cleveland, Ohio area who was playing with a toy gun at a park. And when the officer arrived on the scene... And, of course, this is where it gets a little, depending on whom you ask, but Tamir Rice was shot and killed by that officer. And finally, Lieutenant, and this may not be of concern to you because you don't write the check, but how much is all this going to cost? And how hopeful are you that the department will be able to keep funding this if it is successful? So the main drone that we're looking that we're looking to, uh, to, to, to utilize for the drone first responder, um, it, it's not cheap, but it's not $100,000. It's about an $11,000 drone. 
Um, and then once you put the other, the, the payload, the cameras and those features, it can get upwards of, of about $30,000. Mm -hmm. um, and so we compare that cost to what it would cost to buy a police car and put lights and other equipment in it. There's a, there's, there's not a real, it's not, it's not, it's not more expensive to deploy this program. Mm -hmm. um, and you look at the human cost and the maintenance and everything that comes with it. I believe we're going to see a cost savings um, on a year to year basis. Um, there's been some research that shows that this drone is a first responder program cost about one tenth um, to deploy mm -hmm. of what it would cost to deploy an officer in the field. And also to archive and keep certain footage that you might need could be used as evidence. Would this be similar to body cameras that officers are wearing? Would you all treat that footage as the same? And also would Absolutely. the public have access to it? Absolutely. Our program is going to be set up. Um, we, we, can, we currently use body cameras. We've been using body cameras for some time now. Um, and that footage is stored and maintained in the cloud, cloud-based server. Um, and any citizen could come in at any time through the open records process um, or ask for that footage. And our drone footage is going to be maintained the same way. And we've already been in discussions with the, uh, the district attorney of DeKalb County, who was on board and is excited about how we use this program to make sure we get uh, more evidence. Chula Vista has shown that there are now people who probably wouldn't have been arrested for violent crimes had it not been for that drone um, above seeing capturing people throwing guns in dumpsters, throwing you know drugs in dumpsters, running and trying to conceal themselves, whereas ground officers would have never seen it. Mm -hmm. And that drone was above long before the ground officer ever got on scene and was able to maintain footage. So now police officers, instead of having to constructively go back and, and get video surveillance footage and witness statements, they're now able to have their own resource from that drone to say, hey, this is what happened from the moment we got the call and responded until the moment we arrived. And you actually even see how we took this subject into custody. So there's that, that minimizes the potential for questions mm -hmm. about evidence, the security of evidence, and officer's conduct on scene as well. Lieutenant Abraham Ayana, he's with the Brookhaven Police Department. And we've been talking about a new program that will use unmanned drones to respond to not only just emergencies, but just some typical daily calls from citizens. Lieutenant, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. We'd like to come thank out you, there and, and see the drone in action. Will y'all let me fly the drone? I need a license. No, nah, no, nah, we're not going to let you fly the drone, but we'll let you watch and we'll, we'll answer all your questions. I have operated a drone before, Lieutenant. I want you to know on this program, I didn't hit okay. anything. Well, I don't think it did, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let you, how about this? We'll bring out one of our smaller training drones, let you prove yourself <laughs> on that one a little bit, and then we'll see what you can do. I wouldn't dare mess with the wonderful citizens of Brookhaven and their taxpayer money to mess up a drone. I'll, let, <laughs> I'll leave that to y'all. Lieutenant, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Information that the community needs to know. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me. Take care now. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Let's face it, at this time of year, 
Who doesn't love this jolly old fella? Therefore, the post office department, a branch of the federal government, recognizes this man, Chris Kringle, to be the one and only Santa Claus. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. Alvin. Thank you, Santa. This is for you. You like the Oak Ridge Boys, right? Yeah. You're welcome. Ah, uh, Santa, he's everywhere. And just like many who are navigating this holiday season by working from home because of social distancing and maybe just wanting to avoid large crowds, maybe some of the uh, Santa Clauses are doing the same thing. Now, we checked in with Simon Property, which owns several local malls here in the area. Now, they are offering in-person visits with Santa Claus, but the visits are socially distant, and visitors are encouraged to RSVP in advance, because Santa and his helpers, they'll also be wearing a mask. And while some Santas are hosting an in-person visit, others have decided to work virtually from the North Pole. I should know. We're about to check in with one. Our one and only Santa D. They also refer to him as the real black Santa. Santa D, welcome back to the program. I appreciate it. Oh, it's always a pleasure to come and visit with you guys. So thank you for having me. Son, I got to ask you, because I've been asking everybody this, what do you make of this year? Oh, my goodness. Uh, with the turmoil in regards to the pandemic, unprecedented, never yeah. seen anything like it. The the tension in the country itself, uh, I mean, from right down to election to, to, to where we are now, never seen anything like it. Uh, but it's still, it's still the holiday season. That is true. It has been. And for someone like you, when all of this has taken place throughout the year, does that prepare you for how you need to be maybe as we get to the holiday season? Does it change your approach when you're talking with kids or anything like that because of what's been going on this year? Well, I don't know if it changes the, our approach of how, how we do things. We've got, we had to become more savvy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 Myself as Santa Claus, I've got all the the, in, in the stuff that I need to make my studio work for me at here at at the North Pole, mm-hmm. uh, where I don't have to change anything because you know this is my brand, this is my company, so I have what's needed to do virtual like we're doing right now. Kids are, are have been going to school virtually, so they are used to it. Mm-hmm. The biggest surprise right now is that they get to see Santa right in their their living room uh, for five to 10 minutes instead of that quick 30 second photo mm-hmm. that they have to take in the mall. They don't have to stand in line. So they actually see Santa at home and it's it's a bigger, it's, uh, it's not what I want, uh, mm-hmm. but the kids are enjoying it. So that's, that's, the, that's the good thing right now. When you had to adapt to the more virtual setting, did that take Santa D a little while to get it? Or you're like, look, I'm, I already know technology. I got this. I'm Santa D. I got this. Well, I, it, it actually was easy for us because, again, the brand, the real Black Santa, that's my brand. Uh, when you saw us at the mall, that was our company. So we have the lighting. We have the cameras. We have we're, we're already set for it. It was yeah. basically easy. 
And what made it easier this year is the company that I work for. I, I actually joined forces with a company called Jingle Ring. Uh, I'm the brand, one of the band, brand ambassadors for them. They're a local company here in Atlanta, uh, but they've been doing stuff nationwide. They, they actually did Santa Fantastical here in Atlanta. Uh, and they approached me and uh, asked me to be a brand ambassador for them. And it became easy where I don't have to worry about the actual technical portion even though I have it, they do it mm -hmm. for me. Oh wow! So it made it a little easier. But you miss, you miss the kids sitting on your lap and pulling on your beard, don't you? <laughs> I tell you, I, I I I've had this this conversation several times, and I tell you what I miss the most about not having the kids here in front of me. Uh, you can be if you're a mall Santa, you you can attest to this. You can see a kid walking with mom and dad and they see Santa and they take off running and they don't care who's in Santa's lap. They don't care who's around Santa. They're going to leap from uh, from about five feet away like Michael Jordan at the, the foul line and jump <laughs> right into Santa's lap. That's a beautiful expression. That's, a, that's an expression of love showing that they love Santa. Uh, the other thing is when you have those kids that are terrified of Santa and by the end of the conversation or about, you know, if you do it right, like I do, I take my time with them and I get them to come. They don't want to leave Santa's side. That thing is what you miss. The actual love and the joy that you feel when you're actually with those kids. Uh, that's what you miss from being technical or being virtual. How many uh, virtual visits or virtual events do you have on your calendar? I imagine it's probably getting pretty busy right now. Well, I am specifically running, most of my virtuals are running through Jingle Ring. Mm -hmm. uh, I do a, a lot of my own personal uh, visits as well. I have a lot of my clients that are calling through, uh, but they're, most of them are going through the Jingle Rings platform to get to make this happen. I have some of my elite clients that are definitely calling up and we're, coming, we're doing this. Uh, I, I hope this is not the new norm. I, I like it because mm -hmm. I'm able to visit with kids. Like uh, one of the first uh, virtual visit I did was with a mil military family in Guam. Oh. I wasn't able to do that as, as the real black Santa here in Atlanta. Uh, but now with virtual, I'm able to, to meet so many more uh, kids. And uh, But I hope it doesn't last forever. Yeah. I really do. As we wrap up Santa D, and, and maybe you don't get this question a lot, but what do you want? this holiday season? What would make Santa happy this holiday season? In, in actuality, uh, because I'm a very religious man, I tell folks this all the time, and it sounds like a beauty contestant. I would just love to see everybody love on each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in truth, uh, because I believe the, the season of Christmas is about love. I, and I ask this question all the time. The meanest, nastiest person that you know, around Christmas, aren't they a little nicer? Yeah, well, just just to, I mean, even I, just, I try not to know being nasty people. Be honest with you, they they're not my circle. But, but I understand. I understand where you're going. I mean, that that person that uh, let's let's say it, that person at the water fountain at work that's always mean to everybody. That's always the humbug. <laughs> they're, they're they're usually nicer around Christmas. Christmas is a time of love and joy, and that's what it's supposed to be. It's about mm -hmm. Christ, and I, I don't want to uh, start preaching on your show, but it's about Christ, and that's what we're supposed to be celebrating the love of Christ. When you look at the word Christmas, it starts with Christ. And we're supposed to start showing the love. And 
I think if we had this all year round, it, we'd have less turmoil and uh, and less of the fighting and the strife that we're seeing throughout mm -hmm. the country, throughout the world, if we had more love going on. And, mm. and like I said, it sounds like a beauty contest, uh, but that's what I would love to see. I would love to see people loving on each other a lot more. Now I got to ask you this too, Santa D. What is the most requested gift from kids this Christmas? What are you hearing? What, what's hot on uh, the list? I've heard a lot of iPads. I, I guess technology is still the thing. Video yeah. games. I mean, they're spending more time on, on video games. So iPads and video uh, game requests have been the most right now. Did time. anyone ask for the iPhone 12? Just asking for a friend. <clears throat> no, no, they just requested an iPhone. They didn't say. They didn't say the specific. A lot of kids have definitely asked for the iPhone, but I mean, not the specific 12. Uh, I'm not an iPhone user, so I well. I have one, but I don't use it. It's not my mainstay, <laughs> so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> now, I also have to ask you this because being Santa does come with the cost, so I'm just wondering, even with these virtual visits for Santa D to keep up his workshop and all of that, uh, is the revenue the same, about the same, a little lower than? <sighs> what a question. And that question, it, it has changed a bit. Yeah. It has changed well, you a bit. Got, well, look, you got to take care of those reindeer. That's expensive. Yeah, yeah. you know, that the, the carrots, I, I, the carrots I grow myself, but, you know, having <laughs> to, to get the reindeer feed every so often. Uh, but, yeah, it, it is just a, it, the, 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 the atmosphere is a little different from what we normally do. Uh, as long as you're, you're doing, you're plotting your virtual visits the way you're, you're, you want to, you can still make a decent income. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the fact that, like I said, my 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 saving grace, so what has changed me is being the brand ambassador for, for Jingle Rings. They they actually uh, helped me supplement everything that was that I may miss not being in uh, doing my opening. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. Santa D, also known as the real black Santa. First of all, happy holidays to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. You always come hang out with us at Closer Look. Thank you. I, I love it. You got, listen, uh, eventually you guys are giving me my own show. I think I got a decent voice, a decent face for radio, so. <laughs> come on, but you know what? I can't let you go until you give me a, a oh, ho, ho, ho. Well, well you know, I, and I've been saying during this, you have that indoor, because we're, we are indoor now, you have that indoor uh Christmas uh, ho ho ho, which is ho ho ho, uh, but I know you want to see the ho ho ho, Merry Christmas, and I just love to, to to be able to say that to everyone, everyone listening to your show. Have a safe and happy Merry Christmas. Uh, God loves you, and so does Santa, and there's nothing you can do about it. Very well said. And on that note, that's exactly what we wanted. Thank you so much. Be safe out there traveling. Okay. Most definitely. I, I'm above the I'm above the traffic. Reindeer's flying low this year, though. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Take care, Santa. Other than my namesake, the godmother of rock and roll, 
singer, songwriter, extraordinary guitarist, gospel singer too, the one and only Sister Rosetta Tharp. The song is Strange Things Happening Every Day, and it was very popular in 1945. 1945, bitter and sweet for this nation. Finally, World War II would end in September, but the nation's president, Franklin Roosevelt, had died in April while visiting Warm Springs, Georgia. Now try to picture Atlanta in 1945, and especially in the area we call now Midtown. Maybe hard to do. But a tea room opened up, and its proprietor was a woman named Mary McKenzie. But, you know, back then, women could not open restaurants, but they could operate tea rooms. And that's how Mary Mac's Tea Room came to be. It's been a staple for 75 years. Now, it did close earlier this year due to the pandemic, but it's back, open for business, and now another chapter to add to its history. Joining me now is Harold Martin, Jr., one of the new co-owners of Mary Max Tea Room. Thank you very much for having me. Let's go ahead and get this out the way. You are not going to change that fried chicken recipe, right? You know, we're not going to change anything. You know, I, I, so I've been in Atlanta for over 20 years. Yeah. Mary Max Tea Room was one of the very first restaurants I went to. I've been hundreds of times. I mean, for me, it started, it represented from 20 years ago, Southern hospitality, Southern food, Southern tradition, and the consistency of it is a critical, critical <laughs> part of it. And so not one thing will change. I will give you a secret, uh, let you in on a secret, that we made a small tweak to the macaroni and cheese Not Harold, now here you go. <laughs> it, 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 it's a risky proposition, but but I but I tell you this, we um, I've been going there a long time. I love everything about Mary Max Tea Room. I love the people, I love the, the hospitality, the decor, the energy the love that I think the restaurant manifests to all of its guests. Love everything on the menu, especially the fried chicken. The one thing that we saw an opportunity on was the macaroni and cheese. Mm -hmm. And when we bought the restaurant, we sat down with the team and everybody agreed that that was a place where we could could improve our recipe, still be consistent with our Southern tradition. Um, So we went with a slightly less eggy macaroni and cheese recipe. So I'd love for you to come in. You tell me if it's better or not. (laughs) So I will be the official taste tester for all of Atlanta. (laughs) Let's go back a little bit and let our listeners know a little bit about you and sort of your background. Someone listening says, okay, well, you appear to have done a lot. You're a businessman. Why this venture? So, so I'm in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. So we have other investments in the restaurant business. But so I, like I said, I've been going to Mary Max's room for 20 years. Um, from when I was a college student, early in my career, the server who always welcomed me with open arms um, has met my kids, mm-hmm. met my parents, anybody I've ever mentored over the years. I've invited to Mary Max's tea rooms. So I, I, I truly love this business. And when I saw that it was closed, it felt like the right time that they, they may be open to transitioning ownership. And I, I just frankly couldn't be more proud of it. I met the owners um, just over two years ago. And it was a very simple man- message, Rose. If you ever, 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 ever decide to sell this business, please call me. Mm-hmm. And they don't they didn't know me from Adam. But I said, if you don't call me, I'm going to be personally offended. They said, just, just at least please give me the courtesy call to have the conversation. And so Mary Max Tea Room, has been around for 75 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Mary Max Tea Room represents Southern food and Southern hospitality and Southern tradition in the Atlanta market. There's a reason that the state house passed a resolution calling it Atlanta's dining room. Mm-hmm. It's so convenient for so many Atlantans. And, it, and, and as I meet more people 
who share my love for Mary Maximum. It's amazing how many stories around, you know, this first place my grandmother took me or my grandmother used to go to Mary Max mm -hmm. or that's my mom's favorite restaurant. And so it's a, it's a big responsibility. I'll tell you another thing, Rose, I've gotten to know a lot of the employees over the years from, from being a consistent customer. And I also wanted to make sure that Mary Max was around, not just for the Atlanta community, but also for those employees. Mm -hmm. As you know, given the uh, global pandemic, there are lots of independent restaurants were closing, yeah. never reopening. Mm -hmm. And it would be a shame if in 2045, we can't celebrate a hundred years of Mary Max because of a pandemic that had a finite lifespan or relatively finite lifespan. And so I think this is a unique time where whether it's restaurants or other types of businesses that we're leaning in to preserve our heritage and our legacy of the city. And I see Mary Max Seawoom being a big part of that. What assurances did you need to give the owner? And by the way, you all and your ownership group will only be the third owners of Mary right. Max Tea Room. What assurances did you need to give them in terms of making sure, obviously you wouldn't, well, we would assume you wouldn't buy something to close it, but what assurances did they want from you all? Uh, Mary Max Tea Room, and I'm going to answer the question, but give the, the listeners some context, was founded by Mary McKenzie in 1945. Mm -hmm. That was at a time at the end of World War II when women were not able to just open restaurants. Absolutely. And so the title of Tea Room uh, was sort of an elevated title for restaurants that were started by women. Um, and at that time, there were 16 tea rooms. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, there's only one tea room left yep. in, in the city, and that's Mary Max Tea Room. So Mary McKenzie sold the business in the early 60s to Margaret Lupo. Margaret Lupo ran the business for more than 30 years. She sold it to John Farrell. And John Farrell had been the owner for 26 years. So mm -hmm. to your point, um, it mattered a lot um, to John that the next owner understood Mary Max, loved Mary Max, and was committed to a future that was consistent with its heritage. And so I gave lots of assurances, but, I, but I'll, I'll tell you the thing that mattered the most, Rose, was that there was a, a, an amazing lady, amazing server uh, named Miss Ellen. Mm -hmm. um, her name was Ellen Fraley. Ellen, uh, Miss Ellen, welcomed me with open arms in 1998, first time I went to Mary Max Tea Room. And I dutifully sat in Miss Ellen's section every time I came to Mary Max for over 20 years. She's a wonderful woman. Amazing. Uh, and unfortunately, she passed away this summer mm -hmm. and one of our dining rooms is named after her. But more than anything I could say to the prior owners, the fact that Miss Ellen can say I've known him for 20 years and I know his character, I know how much he appreciates this restaurant, I know how he treats people, I think is ultimately what made all the difference. So more than anything I say uh, or could have said, I have to give a lot of credit um, to Miss Ellen because she really made the introduction to the owners and highly recommended me as a potential owner. And, and then the rest is history. One listening may say, wow, you and your ownership group took a chance in purchasing an establishment during the pandemic. This isn't just any old establishment. This is quite unique when we're talking about Mary Max Tea Room. I know I was asking, so many people were asking, when are they going to reopen? When are they going to reopen? So now you have reopened, slightly modified, obviously, because of the pandemic. But right now you all are just doing takeout or are you doing any dine-in at all? So, so we are doing dine-in, socially distanced, very rigorous sanitization protocols. Uh, so to your point, um, we're obviously in a very unique season. Um, 
So every decision we make is really about the next 75 years, not the next seven months. And so um, there's no risk that Mary Max Tea Room is going to close um, permanently ever. Uh, and, and, and we're not going to sell the restaurant ever. Uh, so we're, this is really about what's in the best long-term interest of our guests and our employees and of the business overall. So we are open, um, but there, will, there are things you're going to notice. Uh, all of our team members are wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by state law, all front of house guest-facing team members have to wear masks. We also require that our kitchen staff also wears masks. Um, we've launched online ordering, which is something that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, we're, we're trying to do curbside. And, and why, the reason I say trying, we are doing curbside. We are blessed with the issue that curbside has been so popular that I will tell you that we don't make a lot of friends when traffic backs up on ponts. No, you uh, don't, especially over there. The right way to balance that. <laughs> um, Prior to you all purchasing the restaurant, do you know if there were layoffs or furloughs? Or were you able to keep all of the employees that we have been with the restaurant? So we we offered every employee a job, and the vast majority of them came back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a huge testament to the character of the restaurant and the people associated with it. The prior owners um, did not terminate employees, furloughed them, continued to pay uh, benefits during the pandemic. So for our for our management staff, we were able to retain the vast majority of the management staff because they retained their benefits throughout, not just mm-hmm. also making unemployment. So we were able to transition their, their employment. And then with hourly team members, many of whom had been on unemployment, some had been taken had taken other jobs, you know, we had to invite them back. And so we had a, a meeting just before we closed on the purchase. Um, and we just introduced ourselves to all the team members, talked about the future vision of the restaurant, talked about how it would be run, who the people were, who would be involved, uh, and frankly invited them to come back and allow us to, to re-earn their trust. Um, and many came back immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and some said, I'm gonna wait and see. And, and I'm okay with that because I believe in Mary Max Tea Room. I believe in the team we have. I believe in the culture that we're creating around the restaurant, its tradition. And what we're seeing is longtime team members who are excited to come back and work at Mary Max again and be, and be a part of what will be a very bright future. Now, Harold, you and I both know that real estate in Midtown and especially on Ponce de Leon, all around all that is prime. Do you all own the building? You bought the restaurant. Do you own the building? Great question. So a big part of the transition was the prior owners retained the real estate. Mm-hmm. So we own the business um, and we are the tenant of the prior owners. So, so another big part of us coming to agreement was we wanted them to have an interest in our long-term success as well. And so you buy the business and the real estate, you own it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and we said, we wanna own the operating business. That's, that's what we do. That's what I do for a living is run restaurants. And uh, they own the real estate, which is, as you know, prime. When the restaurant opened, it was uh, one storefront at the corner of Ponce and Myrtle. Mm-hmm. Now it's six storefronts. It's a 13,000 square foot building mm-hmm. in a very prime real estate market. Um, and so they preferred to own the real estate long-term and we preferred to own the restaurant. So it really was a win-win. When you think about what Mary Max Tea Room means to Atlanta, and, and I've had so many conversations with some other staples here in the Atlanta area, but when you think about what this means to Atlanta and the fact that you as a young man used to come in there and eat and you brought your family in there and now you're 
part of the ownership. What does that mean to you? And what promises are you going to make? Are you willing to make to the city, to the longtime customers, to people who love Mary Max Tea Room? It's a great. So I, I um, just firmly believe that with blessings comes tremendous responsibility. And so if you had asked me 20 years ago when I moved to Atlanta and I was sitting in Mary Max Tea Room and the servers were just nice to me for no reason, which as you know, Rose, that's hard to find in this world. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find in Atlanta, but just nice to me for no reason. And to think that we now have the ability to make sure we can still provide that for generations of Atlantans to come um, it's just amazing. It's humbling. Uh, I'm 1000% committed to making sure that's the case. And everybody involved in that restaurant knows that, that for me, more than a business, this is very personal. Um, um, it's obviously a business that needs to be run well and will be run well, but it's personal because it's one of the few places that I've been where everybody's welcome with a hug. And, and it just, it, it's because we're selling more than food, we're selling hospitality, we're selling belonging, a feeling of, this is like my grandmother's house, mm -hmm. right? It's a place where I can always come back to. And it will always be that, always be that. Well, listen, Mary Max Tea Room has welcomed everybody from Beyonce to the Dalai Lama, to the beloved late James Brown, former president Jimmy Carter. My picture ain't on the wall, what's up with that? You know, it's, it's if you bring a picture, <laughs> we put it on the wall. That's how it works. So I had the same conversation 10 years ago with the server. I said, wow, this is amazing. What do I have to do to get my picture on the wall? So I was a very <laughs> regular loyal guest. And she leaned into me real close and she said, you know, if you just bring a picture, we'll put it on the wall. Uh, now, that doesn't assure you prime placement. But but it does assure you placement on the wall. So I, I'm I'm committed, Rose. If you 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 help me find a picture that you like, we will put it on a frame. Or put it on. Hmm. I think Miss Ellen would be very proud. And so, I, on behalf of of all of Atlantans who definitely loved her, we really appreciate you naming that dining room after her. That says a lot. Harold Martin Jr., one of the new co-owners of Mary Max Tea Room. Been around for 75 years, definitely an institution. Harold, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed. From shifts in power to a mental health crisis, 
So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.